1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Here is what God says to us. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our freedom to come around your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for our confidence that when we open this book, we know you speak to us. Lord, we pray that this morning you'd be with us by your Holy Spirit. Would you give us ears to hear the word you have for us? Lord, would you encourage us, comfort us, and strengthen us? And we pray, Lord, that Jesus would be lifted up before our very eyes as we listen to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I think it's fair to say that no one likes a nasty surprise. Uh, But just imagine, as one news article uh, last week reported, waking up in the middle of the night, walking into your kitchen to get a midnight snack, and then almost becoming a snack yourself. That's what happened to one family in Clearwater, Florida, when they woke up in the middle middle of the night for some food, to find an 11-foot alligator in their kitchen. And it had apparently broken in through a small window, presumably looking for food. Now, I think of all the nasty surprises that we might imagine finding when we go downstairs in the dark in the night, surely that is the last thing that we would expect to find. It would be an unbelievable shock, wouldn't it? One I'm sure we hope we'll never experience. It's certainly, I think, one good reason not to move to Florida. But sometimes I think trials in the Christian life can be just a bit like that alligator. Just as no one imagines that they'll come down for a glass of water in the night and find this ravenous 11-foot reptile lying in wait for us, so too we often live our day-to-day lives as Christians not really expecting that genuine suffering might be just around the corner. We just don't anticipate it. And then when a trial does rear its head, we are totally thrown by the shock and surprise. And maybe in those moments, all sorts of questions come rushing into our heads. What's gone wrong? Why is this happening to me? Where is God? Doesn't he love me? The trial is bad enough, but our shock and our surprise can make it much, much worse. And that's why Peter opens this morning's passage with these words. Verse 12, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Peter doesn't want his readers to be taken by surprise. 
He doesn't want them to be left shocked and shaken, tossed and blown about by every wind of adversity. He wants them to be ready. And God wants us to be ready too. Because trials and sufferings are an unavoidable part of the Christian life. For every one of us, it's not a question of if, but when. So we need to be prepared. We need to know how best to face them each and every time that they come. And that's where this morning's passage promises to give us great help and counsel and comfort this morning. I've titled this morning's message, How to Face Trials and Suffering. How to Face Trials and Suffering. Because after beginning with this wonderfully tender reminder of his love for his readers, beloved, Peter calls them in verse 12, he sets out with a very specific purpose to teach them how to face trials and suffering when they come. But one question for us to ask at the outset, a helpful question, an important question, is what kind of trials does Peter particularly have in mind? Well, first and foremost, he is addressing the trials of persecution. So in verse 14, we'll see that he talks about being insulted for the name of Christ. In verse 16, he talks about suffering for bearing the name of a Christian. Persecution was a very real source of suffering for Peter's readers. And it's increasingly for us too, as we seek to follow Christ in a world that wants nothing to do with him. So Peter's words offer particular encouragement to us when we suffer for being a Christian. And and I want to give proper attention to that kind of suffering this morning. But here's the thing. Almost all of the counsel that Peter gives to us in this passage is equally applicable to the many other kinds of trials that we face in the Christian life as well. There is encouragement here for us when we face all manner of trials, whether it be sickness, sleepless nights, loneliness, grief, relational difficulties, parenting problems, financial pressures, problems at work, and so much more. And I know this morning, and I've had in my mind this week in preparing, there are people in this room who are facing difficult trials here and now today. So please, be encouraged at the outset. This passage is filled with great help and hope for each one of us whatever our most pressing source of suffering is today. Now, Peter has two overarching exhortations for how to face trials and suffering. His first is to rejoice, and his second is to trust. We're going to unpack those two in turn. First to rejoice, and then to trust. So first of all, Peter says, rejoice. Now, I know what you might be thinking. We're not getting off to a good start. At first glance, this first exhortation seems kind of unrealistic. Perhaps we can understand not being surprised by suffering, not being shocked or thrown when it comes. We're prepared to endure it, okay, but what possible reason could there be for rejoicing in it? Well, Peter's response to our skepticism is to give us not one, but three compelling reasons to rejoice. Three truly compelling reasons to rejoice when we suffer. Here's the first one. He tells us to rejoice in belonging to Christ. Verse 13, look at this. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Our sufferings, Peter tells us, find their significance in the sufferings of Jesus. 
Now, it's not a stress that we share in any way in his once-for-all saving work, as, as if his suffering on the cross wasn't somehow entirely sufficient to redeem and rescue sinners. Peter's made clear already in this letter how completely perfect and unique Christ's atoning work was. Chapter 2, verse 24, he told us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Chapter 3, verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Yet, when we suffer as Christians, there is a sense in which we now share in the sufferings of Christ. Made righteous by him, says one author, we suffer as the righteous with him. Made righteous by him, we now suffer as the righteous with him. And all of this means that when we suffer for being a Christian, it's a visible sign that we belong to him. It's just like Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We don't belong to the world anymore. We belong to him. And to belong to him and even to suffer for him is nothing to be ashamed of, says Peter. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see, back then, actually, the name Christian wasn't a name that the, that the, the original believers chose for themselves. It was a name chosen by their opponents to mock and to scorn them. Those Christ followers, those Christians. But Peter says, don't be ashamed when they call you that. When they call you a Christian, hold your head up and glorify God in that name because it's an honor to be counted as a follower of Christ and even to suffer for him. Now, Peter, of course, knew this firsthand. When he and the other apostles were beaten for speaking in the name of Jesus, they went home, Acts 5 verse 41 says, rejoicing that they, would ca they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Church history tells the story of a, of a man called Polycarp. Great name. Don't give it to your kid. <laughs> man called Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. Born just 30 or so years after Christ's death, he came to faith at a very young age. But it wasn't until he was an old man that the Romans decided to arrest him and brought him to the arena. And there in front of a crowd of onlookers, they urged him to offer incense to Caesar. Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, said the proconsul. Swear, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Here's what Polycarp replied. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? To bear the name of Christian, to be associated with Christ, and even to suffer for him is an honour. And so Peter says, glorify God in that name. Love the lost. Go on confessing your faith. Live differently for Christ. Don't be ashamed in the face of suffering. Rejoice to be counted as belonging to Jesus. Because there's no greater privilege that we have than to belong to him. 
No greater honour than to suffer in the service of the king. But that's not the only reason that we rejoice when we suffer. Secondly, Peter tells us that we can rejoice in the nearness of Christ. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. How can we rejoice when someone verbally attacks us for our faith? Whether it's to our faces or on social media or in the news articles that we read online. When people mock us for following Jesus, when they laugh at us for our devotion to him, when they abuse us for living differently. Maybe call us names for not condoning their behavior. Let's be honest, it's not easy, is it? Such insults can leave us feeling very small and very judged and very alone for holding the beliefs that we do. How can we rejoice and not just stand in silent fear and maybe have that horrible sick feeling rising in our stomachs? Well, by realizing, Peter says, that there in that very moment we are blessed by God. And not just in some vague and distant way either. We often talk about being blessed by God and we're a bit, we're a bit vague. No, even as we stand there and have insults heaped upon us, Peter tells us that God's own spirit rests upon us. Whether we feel it or not, he is with us to protect us and strengthen us. I couldn't help be reminded of the time that the Assyrian army were sent to seize the prophet Elijah. Do you remember this? 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, We're told, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, this is the servant of Elijah, he said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elijah said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. To the naked eye, when we stand up for Christ, it looks like we're weak and alone. But we're never weak and on our own. There is an unseen reality that right now only the eyes of faith can perceive. But it's a reality that's even more profound than a host of angels all around us. Peter says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. He's always with us, but especially so when we suffer, to watch over us, protect us, and lead us. In fact, that phrase, spirit of glory, looks back to and recalls the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day that manifested the glory of the Lord as Israel were led through the wilderness. Even more incredibly, the language of the Spirit of the Lord resting upon us comes straight from Isaiah 11, verse 2, where Isaiah foretells the coming of Christ, saying, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. One commentator, Juan Sanchez, says, stop and think about the implications of this reference. The same spirit who rested on Christ now rests on us. How do we know? 
because we are suffering in his name. We belong to God and we have been given the spirit of Christ. Christian suffering is not an indication that God has abandoned us. It is an indication that God is with us because we belong to him. So the spirit of Christ rests upon us. And that is a privilege that no worldly, insight could, uh, what, what, no worldly insult could ever tarnish and no amount of worldly approval could ever match. When we go through trials, whatever the trial might be, we can be utterly certain that God is with us. I heard someone use the illustration uh, to help us think about this of a young child coping with a serious illness in hospital. And naturally, the parents stay close by the bed all through the night, never drifting away, though in his weakness, the child is not always aware of them. Though he's not aware of them, they are as close as it is possible for them to be. Even when we're suffering, even when our suffering makes us feel like God is standing off at a distance, or worse, that he's abandoned us altogether, the reality is that in those moments, he is far closer than we could possibly imagine because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. So we can rejoice. We can rejoice in belonging to Christ. We can rejoice in the nearness of Christ. And thirdly, we can rejoice in our future with Christ. Peter says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, here's the, here's the logic of what Peter's saying here. Our willingness to share in Christ's sufferings now, particularly to suffer for his name, means that we will indeed share in his glory when he returns. Because united to him, belonging to him, where he goes, we go. He suffered, and so we must suffer. He was raised up and glorified, and so too we will one day, without a doubt, be raised up to share in his glory. But there's something more here, too. Do you notice the, the, the piling up of joy in Peter's words? Rejoice now that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We rejoice now, but when Christ returns, we will experience overwhelming joy. Any joy we experience today is just a foretaste, a small glimpse of the joy and gladness that we will experience on that day when Christ returns. But I think the two joys are even more connected than that in Peter's thinking. One of the reasons we rejoice now, even in suffering, is precisely because we know we will be so incredibly overjoyed in the future. To put it another way, meditating on that certain future joy should actually energize our joy in the present. Which has really challenged me this week about how little I actually think about the joy to come. About the time when Christ's glory will be revealed. It's just not something that I give thought to each and every day. And yet the New Testament is overflowing with invitations and encouragements to us to continually fix our attention on our future with Christ. Just a few examples. The Apostle Paul exhorts us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Peter's already reminded us back in chapter 1 that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded right now through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Once more, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then again in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Each time a hardship enters our lives, we're reminded that this world is not our home. We are broken people living in a broken, sin-filled world. And one of the biggest ways that God helps us to endure those hardships right now, and even to rejoice in the midst of them, is by calling us to look up and look forward to see our present momentary afflictions in the light of the eternal joy that will be ours when Jesus returns. To let our expectation of that joy energize our joy in the present. Now one practical way that we can do this is to really know God's word. To fight the fight of faith by studying, meditating on and treasuring the promises of God. And perhaps especially those passages that speak of our future home with Jesus. Uh, I have been dwelling recently, actually, partly through some conversations with other people, on Revelation chapter 21. And what struck me afresh is just how perfect our future home will be. Uh, When you read Revelation 21, you're just left thinking, it really couldn't be more amazing than this. I mean, what would you add? We're told that God will make his dwelling place with man in a brand new creation, and we will be his people, and God himself will be with us as our God. And he promises to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. What a glorious vision of our hope that is. And God has littered the scriptures with these kind of promises. Another way for us to rejoice Uh, over our future in Christ is for us to talk more amongst ourselves, to to talk more often and more naturally with each other about the world to come. And we can do that when we're enjoying life's good gifts here. Every pleasant gift here is just a tiny foretaste of things to come, and we can celebrate that together and point each other forwards. And we can do it when we're walking alongside each other in trials. Every pain, every hardship Every sorrow that we experience here will be more than made up for in the glory to be revealed there. Life is a hard road to walk sometimes, much of the time. But our destination makes it all worthwhile. We are destined for a world of unimaginable joy with Jesus. And with that future in mind, we really can rejoice 
with genuine anticipation, even while we endure trials and sufferings here and now. And the other thing that Peter says we can do besides rejoice, second thing for this morning, is trust. Rejoice and trust. Often I think when we're trying to support someone through a trial, our, our, perhaps our most common bit of advice in the end is to, is to say to them, well, trust God. We encourage each other to trust God, which is good advice. It's good counsel, but it can be a little too simplistic and unhelpful if that's literally all that we have to say. You know, ju- just trust God. You, you, you just need to trust God in this. All you can do right now is trust God. In contrast, when God calls us to trust him throughout the scriptures, which he does again and again and again and again, he is always much more specific in reminding us why we should trust him. And that is what the suffering Christian most needs to hear. Not just trust God, but trust God because he's like this. Trust him because he's already done this. Trust him because he's promised to do this and this and this. His loving invitations to trust him always come with the most compelling reasons. It's, it's those specific assurances and promises that stir up new faith in the suffering Christian's heart. And that's precisely what we find going on here in this passage. Peter highlights two compelling reasons to trust God in our suffering. First of all, we can trust him to work all things for our good. We can trust him to work all things for our good. God ordains all things, even our trials, for our eternal good. We, we see that, first of all, in that little phrase, fiery trial, in verse 12. Now, we, we hear fiery, and we perhaps immediately assume he's, he's talking about a super severe trial, maybe literally being burnt at the stake or experiencing some kind of intense physical pain. But the word fiery doesn't so much refer to the the magnitude of the trial, the the severity of the trial, as it does to God's good purposes in the trial. Fiery trials are purifying trials. Just as gold is thrust into the fire to be refined, precisely because it's so precious, so too God allows us at various times to be thrust into the fire and refined, precisely because we as his children are so precious. That idea of refining is what's appearing again again in uh, verses 17 to 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What's Peter saying there? Is he saying that God's people are somehow still under judgment? No, that's not it at all. There's no punishment left for any of us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has paid it all for every single believer. But almost certainly what Peter's referring to here, what he's alluding to, are the words of Malachi chapters 3 and 4. Malachi, uh, if you don't know, is the last book of the Old Testament. And in that book, in those last chapters, Malachi prophesied that one day the Lord would come like a refiner's fire to his temple. And for his people, his appearing would bring cleansing from sin and purify them for worship. So his appearing would be good news, would bring cleansing and purification. But for evildoers, Malachi says, his appearing will bring destruction 
the burning up of the unrighteous and the wicked. The same fire, the same God that purifies one, punishes and consumes the other. That's what, hap- that's what happens when the God of the Bible draws near. But what does all that have to do with our trials? Well, for the Christian, trials are not a sign of God's absence, nor are they a sign that he's approaching us to punish us. They are a sign that he has graciously drawn near to purify us, to preserve us and prepare us for the glorious inheritance that awaits us. Just as Peter reminded us back in chapter 1, again, we've got that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. And he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is precisely because God is committed to protecting us and guarding us until Christ returns that now for a little while he allows us to be grieved by various trials. He's using every single one of those trials to strengthen our faith in Jesus, to deepen our assurance, to draw us closer in dependence to sweeten our fellowship with our Saviour and better prepare us for the day when we will see him face to face. And hasn't that, if we think about it, in fact been our experience as we look back on the trials of the past? Hasn't God used them to purify our faith and sweeten our enjoyment of Jesus? And if we've seen him do it before, why would we doubt that he won't do it again? When he has promised to work all things together for our good, we can trust him. If you're suffering this morning, you can trust him. No suffering will come upon us that God has not allowed in his loving wisdom to reach us. We never suffer because somehow the devil has got the upper hand over God. God is sovereign. And that fact is our great comfort. Every trial, every pain, every sickness, every persecution, each one only reaches us after passing through his loving hands. We saw this, of course, last week in the, as we quickly went over the sufferings of Joseph. What others might intend for evil, God transforms and designs for good because his purposes cannot be thwarted. Now, I know that there are some sat here this morning who are experiencing real acute suffering in their lives right now. What we're talking about here is not just theoretical for you. It's not just far off. It's not just preparing you for the future or reminding you of the past. You're experiencing the pain of suffering right now. You're living right in the midst of a fiery trial, whether it be aching grief, persistent loneliness, emotional depression or physical pain a serious sickness or some kind of persecution, whatever it is. Perhaps right now you can't even imagine how what you're enduring could possibly turn out for your good. It's true, sometimes when we're in the midst of trials, our future can look utterly black and hopeless. But there's, there's one thing that we can do in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the unknown, and that is to trust him. We can trust that God is wiser than us, that he can see things better than us, 
that he has secured a glorious future for us, that he has committed and promised to always do good to us. Spurgeon once said, the worldling blesses God, that's the, 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 the non-Christian, blesses God while he gives him plenty, but the Christian blesses him even when he smites him. He believes him to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. Or someone once paraphrased it, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. We can trust him to work all things for our good. And secondly and finally, we can trust him to keep our souls. We can trust him to keep our souls. No trials are pleasant however big or small, but sometimes the pain of suffering can lead us to try and escape it at all costs. Every other concern goes out of the window because we just want the suffering to end. We want to get out from under the trial. But it's when we begin to remember that no trial comes to us, no trial comes upon us apart from God's loving purposes, it's then that we can begin to find God's peace and help in the midst of our trials. And that's exactly what Peter encourages us to do in the last verse, verse 19. He says, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now that word entrust is a banker's term. It's the same word Jesus used on the cross when he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It captures the idea of delivering a great treasure over to someone for safekeeping. And in this case, in the midst of suffering, we entrust the treasure of our immortal souls to God. And then just to further remind us of the credentials of the one that we're trusting, Peter tells us two more things about this God. First, he reminds us that our God, this God, is our creator. He's the one who made us and formed us in the beginning. And that's why we can entrust ourselves to him now. As our creator, he knows us intimately, inside out. It was he that formed our inward parts, who knitted us together in our mother's womb. It is he who numbers every hair on our heads and not one of them is lost without his knowing. He has, as our creator, he has compassion on us in our weakness. Psalm 103 says he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. It's he, our creator, who's our helper. As the psalmist so beautifully recounts in Psalm 121, the maker of heaven and earth, he is our helper. And it's he, our creator, who is also utterly faithful. And that's the second credential of God that Peter wants to draw our attention to. That the one to whom we entrust our very souls is faithful. He's faithful to keep all of his promises. And oh, how many promises he has made to us in Jesus. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. He has promised to finish the work he's begun in us. He has promised to be our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. He has promised us 
everlasting life, to raise us up after death. He has promised that Jesus will return one day to take us home. He has promised a new heavens and a new earth. He has promised to one day wipe away every one of our tears. He has promised to dwell with us forever. All these promises and so many more he has made to us, his children. And of this we can be sure, he will be faithful to keep every single one. Because all of his promises find their yes in Jesus. Each one was purchased by his precious blood. This is the God in whom we trust. So that we can say with Paul in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And so even in the midst of the greatest trials, we, when we entrust our souls to God, can find confidence and peace. Truly, says Psalm 62, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress and I will never be shaken. But there's one last thing as well that we find at the end of verse 29. One more supernatural fruit that's given to us besides peace when we entrust our souls to God, we also find the encouragement to do good. Even in the deepest, darkest trial, we find renewed freedom and encouragement to go on doing good. We don't need to be paralyzed by fear or consumed with our fragile condition. God has got us. He's holding us. He has promised to keep us and therefore we are set free to give our attention to doing good to others. Even in the midst of the greatest suffering, we can go on caring for our family, loving our enemies, showing compassion to the needy, continuing to proclaim Jesus to the lost. This is the breadth of God's care for us in our trials. This is the freedom that comes from entrusting our lives to him. Fear for ourselves and our condition gives way to love for others when we remember that we're held firm in his love. Whatever our trial this morning, however big and small, let us wisely and confidently entrust our souls to God and continue to do good. Let's pray.